Well, family and guests, good morning. Welcome to Bel Air. For those of you here in the room or those even streaming online, I want to thank you for choosing to be with us on this Sunday. We are in a series right now, in fact. We're headed towards Easter, in which we're going to be back on campus, as you heard a moment ago. We're very excited about that. And as we go through each of these weeks leading up to Easter, we've been going through the gospel according to Mark. Now, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course, these disciples of Jesus. They've given eyewitness accounts to the life and ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And each of these seven weeks, we're only looking at Mark's perspective. It's simply the last week of the ministry that Jesus had while he was here on earth before his death, burial, and resurrection. There's been a lot of amazing things that happened during that week. I mean, I can't even imagine what the disciples were feeling in that moment. It's important for us to put ourselves in their shoes. You know, here we are, 2,000 years later, we look back on that historic moment, that historical moment that actually happened, and we kind of read our interpretation into it. And that's good. It's appropriate. It's important for us to do that. But it's also important for us not to forget what the disciples might have been thinking and feeling In many ways, after the great triumphal entry, in many ways after many people saying, wow, is this this really the Messiah? Is this the one? Is this the one that's going to redeem Israel to put us back on the map? Who knows what they were thinking? But the Bel Air Drama Department gave us a a, a humorous perspective on perhaps this is something that they might have said in that moment. Hey, Bob, Peter's got a podcast. Check it out. Hey, welcome to the Passover Podcast, brought to you live from the beautiful Garden of Gethsemane. I'm Peter, and this has been the best. Very funny, guys. That's John, that's Andrew, and cut it out. It's not very funny. And that's Matthew joining in. Thank you, Matthew. You're not going to upset me because this has been the, the best, best week ever. The palm procession. Oh, yeah. The money changers. Healings left and right. Yeah. Jesus is on a roll. He's so hot, even the Pharisees won't touch him. If he keeps this up, they're going to crown him king by the end of the week. Yeah, which is great for all of us. Well, except for uh, Peter because Jesus said that he is going to deny him before the cock crows. <laughs> Obviously, he was joking. We all know I'd rather cut off my own arm than deny him. Yeah, we know, we know. Then what did he mean by it? I don't know. He says a lot of stuff I don't understand. Like the fig tree. Do you guys know why he cursed it yesterday? No, not really. No, no. But I don't think we're supposed to understand everything he does. I mean, like tonight. Yeah, usually he asks to come pray by himself, but tonight he asked us to come with him. Which means something really big is going to happen, and he wants us to see it. Yeah, yeah, like uh, maybe Peter's denial. <laughs> oh, come on, not going to happen. Not going to happen, period. John. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I'm kind of dying on the vine here. I think I ate and drank too much at the Passover meal. No, you've oh. got to stay awake. That's all he wants. Mm. Stay okay. awake. I'm awake, I'm awake. This disciple is getting no shut eye. I'm awake. I'm up, I'm up. I didn't deny him. I didn't. Oh, come on, guys. He asked one thing. We couldn't even stay awake? Is he still at it? I don't think he's moved. You know, if I'm asleep when the cock crows, I can't deny him. That'll fix that. Hey, Peter. Yeah? Why did you bring your sword? Mm, You never know when you'll need it.
So perhaps it's not too much of a stretch to say, you know, we look back on that moment, we, we look at it through the cross, of course, and we might say, how could the disciples do that? But remember, in that moment, things have been going very well, very well for the disciples. They've spent three years following Jesus. In many towns, they were told just to move on. In many towns, they were chased out. In many towns, they were persecuted. In many towns, they were trying to be captured. But now, in Jerusalem, God's city, here they are, received, people singing, praising Jesus when he comes in. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, this is the Messiah. This is the King. He's the one that's going to make everything right. And then all of a sudden, we get to the garden. And perhaps the best week ever takes a turn for the worse. Or does it? Let's take a look at what happens here in Mark chapter 14. If you have your pew Bibles, why don't you open those up? They're in front of you. They're the red book right in front of you. If you're in the front row, you can grab those. There's a little cubby behind your leg. If you're online, we're in the New Revised Standard Version. We're on page 827 in our pew Bible. If you're looking it up on your phone or another device, you can go to the New Revised Standard Version, as I said, and it's Mark 14. I'm going to read for us verse 26 all the way through 42. So if you were here with us last week, we took a look at the Passover meal of which Jesus, as the Lamb of God at the table, institutes not only the bread and the cup, but as that meal wraps up, it then leads into this scene. So you'll hear, you'll notice the first verse of this section, they're at the table in verse 26, and then it ends up at 42. Listen as I read. This is from Mark's gospel, and this is God's word. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with them Peter and James and John, and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough! The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This, my friends, is God's Word. So here we are. We have this scene. In many ways, one of the most significant moments 
not only in Mark's gospel, but in all the gospels. In fact, one of the most significant moments in all of human history. Yes, we talk about the cross and we understand the, the significance of the cross, especially the empty cross, knowing that Jesus defeated death. He's no longer on the cross. On, on Easter Sunday, we're going to celebrate that He is risen, that He is the last word in our lives, and no matter what we're going through, that He is the one that brings it all together, that all of our hope and joy and peace is found in Him. And in many ways throughout church culture around the world, the cross has become synonymous with many of those things. We wear crosses. We, we have crosses on architecture. But I want us to not forget the garden. In many ways, the garden, it's harder to wear on a necklace. You know, how do you wear a garden on your, on your neck? It's harder to put into architecture. It's harder to, to do this or that. But it's important for us to know the significance of this, this, this moment. So if you're taking notes, there's three things that I want us to pick up and carry with us, and I want us to carry these things into our week, into our lives, into our friendships, into our tough decisions, into our workplaces, even into our travels. And the three things are this, that in this moment, we see the credibility of this moment. Second, we see the gravity of this moment. And third, we see the opportunity of this moment. Keep those Bibles open. Let's walk through each of those three together. So in verse 32, we see this moment in Mark 14. When they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. I want us to pick up this right here. The word distressed. In our English language, you know, we get distressed often. But it's nowhere close to what Jesus was actually experiencing. In fact, in the original Greek, in the original language of which the New Testament was written, in the Koine Greek, it literally means that he was astonished. He began to be astonished. Now, for some of us, I imagine, we like that. Well, I like the fact that he's human and he gets astonished. I, I like the fact that he seems Surprise. I, I like the fact, actually, that he's distressed in this moment because I, I, I want a Savior, I want a King, I want a Lord that I can relate to. Yet some of us, if we hear that Jesus was distressed, if he was astonished, we might, we might not like that. Because, yes, it's true that Jesus is fully man, but he's also fully God. And we see that throughout his life, he knows exactly, it seems, what's going to happen. He has this intimate relationship with God the Father that is stretched throughout all of eternity. Yet in this moment, Mark writes that he begins to become astonished. Is Jesus ever surprised by things? Well, Mark says here in this moment that all of a sudden he's experiencing something that he's never experienced before and he begins to feel astonished. And it goes on. He began to be distressed or astonished and agitated. Now, we get agitated often. You know, we get agitated if the line is too long, if we don't get the food that we order. We get agitated if somebody doesn't return our phone call or an email. We get agitated a lot, but th that's not exactly what, what Mark is saying here. In the original Greek, it literally says that Jesus was horrified, that he was astonished, that he was beginning to be astonished and horrified. Now, the point that I'm trying to make is that there's credibility to this moment. You might say, what? How, how is there credibility to this moment? You see, in the first century, 
If you're going to write a gospel account, a good news account, if you're going to share with the world, let alone your community, about the leader of your movement, the last thing that you're going to share with other people is that he falls apart. You see, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to God's people, the Jewish nation, all of them had leaders that were leaders because they, they, they had it all together in many ways. And even today, we, we, we look at corporations and we look at CEOs, and if they, for a moment, don't have it all together, we say, oh, they're not fit for leadership. We look to our favorite sports stars, and you know, if there's a half a second left, and March Madness, let's say, and it's a timeout, and you've got your star player, the leader, you want him to be calm and collected, not falling apart under the stress. You see, in our culture, we admire people that have it all together. And the last thing that you would do, especially in the first century, would be to let word out that Jesus in this moment, which I'll get to why he does this, but the last thing you would do that you would let out publicly that he is falling apart. Listen to what happens. Not only is he distressed and agitated, verse 35, it says, and going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground This is your king, this is your savior, this is your Lord. This is the one that you pray to. This is the one that you find your strength from. He is coming undone. And the only reason you would actually include this in a gospel account is because it actually happened. There's no incentive to include that the leader of your movement, of your your faith, There's no reason to include that he was falling apart other than he was actually falling apart in that moment. Why would you include that? Why would you do that had it not actually happened? And there's moments in the life of Jesus that when we look at it, we see it. If we really understand that this actually happened, that it was so counterintuitive, it was so countercultural to the view of leadership and the view of power at that time, it makes us say, wow, this, this actually happened. There's credibility to this moment. But why was he distressed? Why was he astonished? Why was he, why was he horrified? And that leads us to the gravity of this moment. You see tens of thousands of people have been crucified. Many, many people experience the pain and the suffering on the cross. You know the word excruciating? You know, maybe you, like me, use the word excruciating when you get a hangnail. I hate it. Oh, it's so excruciating. Or maybe when you stub your toe. You use that word, don't you, excruciating? Well, I, I, I use it too flippantly, actually, because the word excruciating literally was a word that was invented to describe the pain on the cross. The word crux in Latin means cross. Ex means out of in Greek, but also in Latin. Excruciating. Out of the cross comes this pain. But tens of thousands of people have experienced the pain that comes from crucifixion, the, the horrific experience of death that lasted hours. And yet Jesus is not yet there. He's not yet on the cross. He's not yet experiencing the physical pain, the physical torment, yet it says that he began to become distressed. He began to feel astonished. He began to be horrified. You see, it was still hours before he experienced the physical pain of the cross, but in that moment, and we've got to catch this, you can't miss this. That's what I'm saying. We can't overlook the garden. In this moment, he begins to experience what no human being has ever experienced before. And no human being will ever have to experience. 
You see, Jesus has existed as the Son of God eternally, always, all of eternity. I can't even fathom that. He has been in a loving, intimate, glorious relationship with His Father. For all of eternity, every time He turns to God the Father, God the Father is there pouring out His love and His adoration. He opens up His heart and heaven comes pouring down. But in this moment, He begins to experience the spiritual separation from God. You see, Jesus didn't just go to the cross. He experienced something much deeper, much more intense, much more grave, much more heavy. How do we know that? Well, look what he prays in verse 36. He said, Abba. Let's pause there before I read the rest. Abba. It's an Aramaic word. It literally means Papa. Daddy. It's a, it's, a, it's a term of endearment. You've got kids. You've got a brother, a sister. You've got a parent. You've got a grandparent. You have grandkids. You have close friends. And you've got, you know, nicknames for one another, words that nobody else would use because it connotates that intimate, loving relationship. In the moment of his greatest horror, in this astonishing moment with great agitation and distress, he cries out, Abba. But when I think about my son, he's not even three years old, I think about the moment when he broke his arm. Or even last week when he was riding his balance bike. Have you seen these bikes? They don't have pedals. They literally, it's like a bike with no pedals. And he literally like runs. And he like was going, going, going. And he hit the curb and tumbled over it into this huge thing of bushes. Or maybe even yesterday. I think of it at the, at the mall. We were in, in this store right down here in the valley. And, and he was running out. He was so excited. He just, he just loves being excited, I guess. It's like his thing right now. And he's running out of this store, and it's like in slow-mo. I, I just can't move quick enough, and I see what's about to happen. And there's two steps that go out of this store, but he doesn't see the two steps. You know, the really, not like soft steps like the front here that are rounded wood. It's like the, like the hard, like, metal edge so you don't slip on it. And literally, he's just running, just so excited, and he just begins to just airwalk for a moment and lands flat on his face. Oh, and he turns to me, in all those moments, he says the same thing that he's always said when he's in great distress, great pain, great horror. And he says, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And he's crying out for me, and I go running to him, and I hold him. And Jesus, in this moment that we cannot overlook, that we have to understand the gravity of this moment, where he's greatly distressed, where he's astonished, he's filled with horror, he turns to his father, and he says, Daddy. Abba, Father, verse 36, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. What's this cup? You've got to understand what this cup is to understand the gravity of this scene, of this scenario, of this moment. You see, he just came from a meal. It's not one of the cups that was instituted at the Passover meal. He didn't take one of those cups in the garden. It wasn't like a solo cup or an AMPM cup. He didn't have some cup left over from a meal. He didn't have any of that here in his place, but he prays, God, would you take this cup from me? What is that cup? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, there's actually a reference to a cup. But it's a cup that is only to be tasted, a cup that is only to be drank by God's enemies. It's called the cup of wrath. You see it in Ezekiel. You see it in Isaiah. It literally says that you will drink the cup of wrath, the cup of torment, the cup of sorrow. 
You see, there's this picture that we get in Scripture that I imagine many of us are uncomfortable with. It's that God is a God who is both loving and yet sometimes God is a God of wrath. And many of us are, are uncomfortable the fact that I even use that word wrath right now. And it's hard enough sharing it with our non-believing friends or our family or our coworkers or our neighbors, but for some of us, it's hard enough for us to reconcile those two things. How could a God be loving, but how, how could a God also be wrathful? And why would He make His enemies drink a cup called wrath? I mean, that's, I don't like that. I like the loving God. Well, I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about the person that you love the most, that you have the most affection for, the one that that you, you care so much about their health and their safety. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a, a spouse. Maybe it's a parent, a grandparent. Think of, think of I want you to per, literally personalize this. Stop listening to me talking and personalize it for a moment. Think of something that you love. Now imagine if you saw something where somebody else came and violated them hurt them. Wouldn't you feel angry? Wouldn't you want to protect? Wouldn't you want to do anything possible to stop the injustice being done against your loved one? And if you say, no, 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 I would just let it happen, then you wouldn't be honest with yourself and You'd be so calloused, I, I, I'd be so worried about you. But if you multiply that to infinity, we have a loving God who created us out of love, who has deep designs and desires and love for us, who wants the best for us, who wants us to experience wholeness, who wants us not to go around filled with shame over things that we've done, who wants us to Behold our relationship with one another, with ourselves, with, with creation, with Him. He, he longs for that. And God is this holy God, this perfect God, this loving God, and He loves us tremendously. And when we allow things into our life that, that, that fracture us, that cause us to hurt one another, to hurt ourselves, to hurt this world, God is angered against those things. Not because he likes getting angry, but because he loves us. And so throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we get these, these pictures of God's wrath, and in many ways it causes us to be horrified, to be astonished. Why, why, would, you, why would you do that? But we need to understand that that wrath that was being poured out against all of humanity and all the brokenness, that God had a plan from the very beginning that there was a Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. And Jesus enters into this moment, knowing full well that He had to die for the sins of all of humanity, but He begins to experience in the garden, in that moment, He begins to experience the astonishing, horrifying experience of actually drinking the cup of wrath. You see, we need to catch this. We cannot overlook this. Throughout all of Scripture, there's been this imagery of a cup of wrath that God's enemies had to drink, and now God Himself in the flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, says, no, 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 you don't have to drink it. Yes, you're all enemies of God because of the brokenness in your lives, the things that you can't do, the things that you've done, yet I'm going to drink it on your behalf. 
But he's not detached emotionally. He doesn't have it all together and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to take care of that for you. He is greatly distressed. He is horrified. He throws himself on the ground. He says, Papa, Father, Abba, take this cup. I'm beginning to experience separation from you. Something he's never experienced before, but then he says this, absolute love, absolute obedience. He says, but not my will. Your will be done. You need to understand that tens of thousands of people have gone to the cross, have been tortured for their faith, have died for their faith, but there's only one who experienced eternal separation from God the Father, and that was Jesus Christ. And that leaves us with an opportunity, an opportunity that we cannot overlook with this moment. You see, it would be one thing if all of a sudden on the cross, all of a sudden Jesus experienced the fullness of being separated from God. That's one thing. I mean, that's intense. And he does experience that. We see that throughout the gospel accounts. I mean, the, the sky goes dark. There's just intense. It seems like all of creation is coming and done. He cries, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not only dying on the cross, but he's experiencing the spiritual separation, the relational separation from his Father for us. That's one thing. But in addition to that, he gets a taste of that. He gets a picture of that in the garden. And it causes him to be astonished at what's ahead. I was in the mall yesterday after I recovered from the, the fall of my son. He, he bounced back quicker than I did. I, mean, I was like, is he okay? Is he going to survive this? He was fine. 30 seconds later, running around, runs into the food court. I'm following him. You've been in the food court. You've seen those, you know, the stores where you're headed for the healthy, you know, the salad, the salad section, but then Cinnabon, you know, <laughs> they've got the samples and, it, you know, it's wafting towards you or Mrs. Fields or, those, you know, the other things. And they've, they've got little samples, right? And you go, no, 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 I can't. Oh, yes, I'll take one. You know, I'll take one. It's just, it's just a little sample, right? I'm headed there. No, no, I can't. Oh, okay, I'll take that one. You know, you get the little samples. And we, we do this often at restaurants. You know, you'll get a little sip before you order the whole thing or a little taste before you get the whole meal. And so very often, if we get a little taste, then we know what's in store. If we get a little sample, we know what the full meal is like. And often, if we don't like what we taste, we will we'll avoid that meal. And we typically choose the meal from the little sample that tastes the best, the glass from the little sip that we like the most. We do this, don't we? Do you realize that Jesus in the garden gets a little taste, a little sip of the wrath of God, the cup of wrath? He gets a little taste of what it's like to be experienced eternally in this moment from one that he's been with eternally. He just gets a taste. He could have said, oh, I don't like that taste. He could have said, I don't want the full cup. I don't want that meal. And I need you to know that though he had the taste, he chose to go to the cross for you and for me. Though in that moment, he just got a taste of it. He wasn't even in the furnace yet. He was just on the outskirts feeling its heat. And he says, oh, this cup, God, take it away from me. But not my will. Your will be done. Do you realize that in that moment, he had a taste of something that you and I will never have to experience? And he had a choice to go to the cross to experience all of the brokenness that we deserve. He, he chose that for you and for me. Do you realize that in that moment, he could have abandoned you? 
He could have said, I don't like the taste. He could have moved on. He could have done anything, but he stayed. No wonder his heart was being poured out. No wonder Scripture says that he was sweating droplets of blood. No wonder he was trying to have his disciples to stay up. Do you realize that he was experiencing something that was ripping his life apart? He didn't abandon us then. And since he didn't abandon us then, why do you think he would abandon us now? You think about the mistake you made last night and the thing that you did last year and the shame that you carry around, the brokenness that you feel, the things that you wish you could have done that you haven't done yet, and you think perhaps that, gosh, why, why, gosh, God, why would you love me? Why would you, why would you adore me? I haven't done enough to earn your love. Maybe some of you are praying to God, you're in the midst of this prayer initiative that our entire church is joining and being a part of. We're covering every hour of the year in prayer. Maybe some of you are praying, you're saying, I just feel like, God, you're not there. I feel like you're abandoning me. But the truth is that in that moment, when you look at this moment, you have to focus on this moment to understand that in the hardest moment in human history, just at the taste of the cup of the wrath of God, Jesus continued on because he knew that if he drank the cup of wrath, then you wouldn't have to. That if he was buried, then you would be raised to newness of life that if he was crucified outside the city gates, that you would be brought in to be part of God's family. And right now we're in the middle part of this story. It begins in Genesis, it ends in Revelation. There's still the newness of the heavens and the earth that will come when Jesus returns here, where we will fully experience his presence, where we'll fully experience his joy and his peace and his satisfaction, where all things will be made new, that we will be reconciled in relationship with one another. And the truth is, is yes, that we feel abandoned sometimes by God. But it's only a feeling. It's not reality. You see, the reality is, is that he never has, never will abandon you. But as we experience life in the brokenness of this world yet to be renewed, yet to be restored, the thing that is left over is that we feel abandoned. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Would you rather feel abandoned and have the reality be that you're not abandoned? Or would you rather not feel abandoned, but in reality you're really abandoned? I think many of us, all we want is just not to feel abandoned. And we really don't care whether we're abandoned or not. We just don't want to feel abandoned. But I would, nine days to Tuesday or however the phrase goes, I would rather actually not be abandoned, which is good because that's the truth of what Scripture tells us, and sometimes feel abandoned. What do we do in those moments where we feel abandoned? Well, we look to Jesus did he feel abandoned? Did the Son of God feel abandoned? Absolutely he did. Was he abandoned? No. Not for a moment. And he went to the cross. He went to the grave so that he could burst forth from the tomb that we can say that he is risen. He is risen indeed. He didn't change his circumstances. He didn't squelch the desires of his heart. 
in the midst of that, he poured out his emotions and his heart and his love for God. He trusted him in the midst of that. He says, take this cup away from me, but, but your will, not my will, be done. And so whatever you're experiencing right now, if you feel abandoned by God in your relationships and your employment status and what the doctor has told you and the things that you long for that you still don't have, you don't need to try to change your circumstances. You don't even need to try to squelch your desires and just be detached from that. Look at Jesus. What did he do? He didn't do either of those. In the midst of that circumstance, he turned to his father. He says, I don't know all of what's playing out right now, but I trust you. Your will be done, not mine. He was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And that same Jesus who didn't abandon you then, who doesn't abandon you now, says that if you put your faith and your trust in him, that same spirit will dwell in you. So as you go through these seasons of life that you don't have to try to imitate Jesus, but literally it would be Jesus flowing in and out and through you in this series, we're talking about the things that God is most passionate about. We're invited to participate in those things. Even in our small groups as we're doing material that is concurrent with that, we see Christ so consecrated at this moment, so absolutely poured out for this moment for you and for me. Would you see that? That he went to the depths of hell for you so you could experience the glorious truth that you've been brought in to be part of God's family. You know, if you see this, if you experience this, if you, if you revel in this, if you allow your heart to be melted because of this, though you might make mistakes, you won't feel like you have to pay off the debt because it's already been paid for. Though you might feel like he's abandoned you, you can look at this and say, I know I feel, God, that you've abandoned me. Pour out your heart and be honest with him, but say, I know that you haven't. I know that you haven't because I see right here this actually happened. You didn't abandon me then, you're not going to abandon me now. What a heavy, heavy moment. As we sang earlier about the glory of God coming down, you, you heard me share this about nine months ago, that the word glory in the Hebrew literally means weightiness, heaviness. And I love the fact that in the heaviest moment in human history that there was a heavier weight and it was the glory of God and displaced the heaviness of this situation that would cause the Son of God to be astonished and horrified. That same glory can come into your life and displace even the heavy things that you're carrying right now, that you're facing right now. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come to this moment with, boy, thoughts and emotions, questions, fears and doubts. And here in this moment, we've had a, a few moments just to look at you, Jesus, that in this horrifying moment when you got a glimpse of what you were about to endure for us, that we see that you chose to enter into that after the sample, you, you, you chose the whole meal for us. May our hearts be melted. May our hearts be softened. May we, perhaps not even needing to know all the answers, just choose to follow you, Jesus. Because you are a leader unlike any other leader who meets us exactly where we are, who transforms our hearts and our minds and brings us to life because of the 
love that you've extended to us. Jesus, we thank you for this time, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.